with regard to the Sandy Hook case, I think there is a potential jury question here as to whether or not marketing a gun by saying that um, firepower uh, with a semi-automatic weapon is a great way to explore how to express your masculinity um, may actually increase the risk of misuse. Remington's going to file a motion for summary judgment based on the lack of evidence of violation of the Unfair Practices Act. All of their advertising is going to come before the court and you're not going to see anything any more riled up than, I mean, a reference to manhood or something. I mean, it's, that just doesn't get it. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from a rainy Southern California I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out, one titled The Sled and the other How to Get Sued. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to welcome and thank our sponsors, Clio and Blue Jay Legal. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And our other sponsor, Blue Jay Legal. Blue Jay's AI-powered foresight programs accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. Learn more at bluejlegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com, bluejlegal.com. On November 12, 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the families of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting victims can go forward with a lawsuit against Remington Arms Company, maker of the Bushmaster rifle, the firearm used in the Newtown shootings. Remington Arms had sought to block the lawsuit, but was denied. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss that Supreme Court ruling in the matter and the potential impact this lawsuit can have on victims of gun violence and the gun industry as a whole. So to help us explore this topic, we have two great guests for you today. First up is Professor Timothy B. Litton, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at Georgia State University College of Law. Professor Litton's research examines health and safety regulation with a focus on gun violence, clergy, and sexual abuse, as well as food policy. He also wrote the book, Suing the Gun Industry, A Battle at the Crossroads of Gun Control and Mass Torts. Welcome to the show, Timothy. Thank you for having me. And our next guest is a returning guest, attorney Stephen Halbrook, senior fellow at the Independent Institute and the author of the acclaimed books, Gun Control in Nazi-Occupied France, Gun Control in the Third Reich, Securing Civil Rights, The Founders' Second Amendment, and That Every Man Be Armed. He's an attorney with extensive knowledge of the historical underpinnings of the Second Amendment and practical knowledge of litigating in this rapidly evolving area of the law. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Glad to be back on the show there, Craig. Thank you. Glad to have you back, too. Well, Timothy, I'd like to start with you. Um, if you could give us a little bit of the background on the uh, dispute that led up to the Supreme Court ruling and then kind of the basic elements of what the ruling, uh, the extent that we can cite to it and what it stands for. Sure. Gun violence victims have been bringing lawsuits against gun sellers, both at the retail level and the manufacturing level, starting in the late 1990s. And the lawsuits sort of grew over time. And um, there was a movement by both the NRA and the gun industry to try and secure immunity um, from these lawsuits. And they were successful in 33 states and ultimately in the U.S. Congress in 2005 with an immunity bill called the 
Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And that act essentially says that the sellers of firearms are immune from lawsuits arising out of criminal misuse of the weapon. Most of the litigation died down following that time. There are a number of notable exceptions to this immunity, and a few cases have actually um, broken through the immunity, at least uh, against retailers. But we have not seen any successful suits that have been brought um, since PLACA uh, against firearms manufacturers. I think it's also important to note that prior to the immunity bill, no lawsuit against a manufacturer by gun violence victim ever succeeded in obtaining an unreversed judgment. So these are lawsuits that had not succeeded prior to immunity. Part of the motivation for immunity, I think, was to save the industry the trouble of trying to defend against them. Um, Fast forward a few years, the Sandy Hook shooting occurred in 2012, and a number of the families of the victims brought a lawsuit in Connecticut State Court, and the lawsuit alleged that um, the manufacturer of the weapon, Remington, that was used in the shooting was engaged in irresponsible marketing practices. And the two theories that were used here were negligent entrustment, the idea that selling the um, a sort of AR-15 style or platform um, gun in the civilian market is um, neglig- a form of negligent entrustment, and also an unfair trade practices allegation under the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, the argument that the type of marketing that went along with the sale of this gun that was purportedly aimed at um, young men uh, and was designed to sort of extol the um, quasi-combat features of the weapon uh, or combat-like features of the weapon was somehow an unethical practice under the state's consumer protection law. Um, The case was dismissed at trial, and when it was appealed to the Connecticut Supreme Court, the Connecticut Supreme Court um, ruled that actually the case can go forward under an exception to the immunity bill, to an exception to PLACA. And that's an exception for any sale of a weapon that, um, where the seller knowingly violated a state or federal, federal statute applicable to the sale or marketing of a firearm. And the Connecticut court held that the Connecticut Fair Trade Practices Act or Unfair Trade Practices Act is essentially a statute, a state statute that's applicable to the marketing of a firearm, just like it's applicable to the marketing of any product in the state of Connecticut. And they argued that the term applicable here means capable of being applied to, which is a fairly broad interpretation of the word applicable in the statute. And in fact, federal courts, both in New York and California, found that similar types of um, claims based on general nuisance statutes did not count as statutes applicable to the sale or marketing of a product. The Connecticut Supreme Court allowed this case to go forward. It was appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court of the United States refused to grant cert. And so the case stands right now in the position that it's headed back down to the trial court in Connecticut, where it's likely to proceed towards discovery. That's a really great reply. Thank you very much for that background. Well, let's turn to Steve. And Steve, what's what was the gun industry's response to this? Well, you mean to the denial of cert? Certainly. And and to the whole lawsuit, I mean, what's what the positions have they been taking and arguing that it prevents them from having liability in this situation? Right. And, and um, Professor Linton gave a good historical view of this. Let me just supplement it a little bit. Back in the 80s, there were a lot of proposals, legislative proposals to ban handguns, and none of them were passing. So some of the uh, trial lawyers decided to make an end run around the legislature and see if the courts would do that, would uh, essentially allow um, product liability suits against handgun manufacturers to, uh, in, in a way to, um, obviously, to get compensation for the victims of crimes by committed by third parties, but uh, in a way to go at the, the gun industry and to um, make 
uh, inroads in it in the sense of uh, restrictions that they couldn't get in the legislative process. The attention later turned to so-called assault weapons once that term was invented in about 1989 and, and applied to rifles of certain kinds. Congress responded with the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, PLACA, in 2005, basically to say that um, you, you can't sue a gun maker or a gun dealer for the criminal act of a third party. And the whole purpose of that was to prevent harassment of the industry, bankruptcy, uh, violation of Second Amendment rights. Uh, but there were exceptions, and, and the one that's applicable here, obviously, is that if you knowingly violate a state or federal statute applicable to the sale or marketing of the product, and number two, this is very important, it's got to be the proximate cause of the harm. So the two examples given in the statute of what that would be would be falsifying records. If you were a dealer falsifying your gun records when you sell a firearm uh, or intentionally selling a gun to a person you know is prohibited, um, like a, a felon, for example, so the kinds of statutes that are applicable to the sale or marketing of the product were considered at, under those examples, arguably, to be gun control statutes. So if you violate a gun control statute and, um, that, and, and that was approximate cause of the harm, then you could be sued. And as Professor Linton mentioned, though, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act could lead to liability there uh, if you market a product in a way that violates that act. Um, it's not a gun control act. It's a, a an act about um, advertising that's bad in some way. And what the plaintiffs allege in this case, though, is that Remington or Bushmaster uh, intentionally advertised the rifle to give civilians um, a way to carry out offensive military-style combat missions against perceived enemies. And you wonder what they were smoking when they made that allegation, because if you look at Remington ads, and this will come out in discovery, they're advertising for target shooting, sporting use, hunting, self-defense, and things like that. They're not saying, buy this gun so you can kill lots of people quickly. So you have that that the plaintiffs are going to have to prove at trial, which they cannot prove. And then you also have got to be the proximate cause of the harm. And we know that Adam Lanza murdered his mother, stole her gun, and and murdered these children at Sandy Hook School, he didn't hear Remington ads that made him do that. So there's going to be a proximate cause problem there. Uh, in, in any event, the Supreme Court, uh, as you mentioned, denied certiorari. They didn't rule that the suit could go forward. What they did was to, to decline to hear the case. And there's ample Supreme Court authority saying that when they denied cert, it doesn't mean anything on the merits of it. The fact that they're not going to hear the case doesn't mean that uh, they have an opinion one way or another on, on this law. So, Professor Litton, what kind of discovery are we going to expect the plaintiffs to pursue, and how will Remington be, dis be responding? He's basically saying that the uh, the ads aren't going to do them any good. Where are they going to go with this case? Well, I think that um, Mr. Halbrook's right to suggest that proximate cause is likely to be an important issue in the trial. Um, we've seen prior to the immunity bill a number of uh, the handful of cases that actually made it to juries in these sorts of lawsuits um, tended to falter on proximate causal issues, and that's because there tends to be a fairly long and complicated chain from the marketing activity that's alleged to be irresponsible to the ultimate shooting, and that often involves resale or 
um, you know, stealing of the weapon or uh, a series of different transactions, not to mention the intentional acts of the, of the shooter themselves. I think that the early parts of the case are likely to focus less on proximate cause from the plaintiff's point of view, certainly, and more on uh, the question of duty and breach, the idea that the industry is somehow engaged in irresponsible conduct that increases the risk of misuse of its weapons. Um, I think there's room for some debate over whether or not some of the um, practices, uh, both design decisions and um, marketing and distribution practices in the industry, um, may be the types of things that could create jury questions about reasonableness. And so, you know, Mr. Halbrick talked about the marketing. For sure, I think it's true that Remington certainly was looking to advertise and promote its weapon among sportsmen uh, and for legitimate hunting purposes. But they also had, you know, partial, uh, an eye out towards slogans like, you know, consider your man card reissued. So I'm not sure that there's anything, uh, you know, on its face irresponsible about selling a gun as uh, a type of gun that will sort of help affirm your masculinity or the type of gun that, you know, might help you make, uh, you know, feel like you could uh, experience a little piece of combat any more than there is in selling an automobile saying that, you know, you could race it like you're at the Indy 500. I think the difference is, is that we now live in a context where um, people are increasingly nervous about young men in particular who are looking for some sort of combat experience that they want to translate from wherever they're getting it in popular culture towards, you know, carrying out these psychotic attacks. And we don't have that kind of culture, I don't think, in um, automobiles or other areas. And I think I mean, it may be the case that people are increasingly wondering whether or not some of these practices might be trimmed back or the readily, uh, of the, the ease with which you can you know, transform an AR-15 platform into a fully automatic weapon, even though that may not be the intended goal, if it's foreseeable that this is relatively easy to accomplish, these are things that may be um, creating concern. Given that, I think it's possible that the plaintiffs are going to go looking for things in the marketing uh, strategy or in the design decisions in this weapon that might suggest that sort of unreasonable behavior, or at least create a jury question for that. I think Mr. Halbrook's absolutely right that the plaintiffs are likely to have a much more uphill battle and um, are going to have a very hard time showing proximate cause in this case because there's so many things that happened between that marketing campaign and Adam Lanza's activity. And there's also not a clear connection, as Mr. Halbrook points out, between Adam Lanza's choice of firearm and anything that Remington may have done. Well, Mr. Halbrook, what do you think? I mean, we have a, a very sympathetic case here, children being killed in school. Do you think the jury is... Uh, there's any potential that if it ends up being a jury case that the jury would bypass some of these laws and just in passion be inflamed and, and come out with the ruling against the uh, Remington or any of the gun manufacturers? I guess that's always a danger when if a jury's going to totally ignore the law, but if they're given the proper jury instructions, and I don't know why they wouldn't be, uh, they, they've got to show that the advertising was such that it was the type of thing that would cause something like this, you would have the type of advertising and then the proximate cause, which is would be very difficult. But I think this shows you something kind of interesting about the allegations in the complaint. The complaint seems to allege that Remington advertised these guns so you can use them to murder people. But the most that I've heard uh, are the kinds of actual advertising that Professor Linton just mentioned refers to increase your man card or something like that. I mean, since when would something like that be a suggestion to go murder people? We have the term man cave. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, there's some implication there where it's some kind of place where very evil deeds are committed. 
today we have masculinity seems to be maybe a, a bad word in certain circles that used not to be. So what kind of advertising are they going to be able to find? I, I think the discovery is going to, it should focus on the advertising. I think the plaintiffs are going to, going to want to get into the um, as many records as they can, regardless of uh, that subject. But uh, Remington is going to argue that uh, the scope of discovery should be confined to the, t the type of marketing and advertising and, and the proximate cause issues. I do disagree that the issue will not be regarding the design of the firearms because the what the Connecticut Supreme Court said is that it could go forward on the Earned Fair Trade Practices Act, which has to do with the way the guns were marketed. And there was nothing in the lawsuit uh, in terms of what was upheld to go forward by the court about the design. Certainly nobody's arguing that the firearms here were converted to machine guns. And so this issue of red readily convertible would, would not be legitimate to come up. And the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms, and Closes has determined that guns of this type are purely semi-automatics. They're designed to fire only one shot per trigger pull. Uh, they don't fire more than one shot per trigger pull like a machine gun would do automatically. So I, I don't think that's going to be an issue here, but uh, that doesn't mean the plaintiffs won't try to raise it, but I think the issue is really going to focus on what I consider to be a defamatory allegation that Remington intentionally marketed these guns to uh, try to encourage people to buy them so they could murder people. I think that's right. I didn't mean to suggest that um, the issue of gun designs is at play in this particular lawsuit, although it is in play in a lawsuit that's been filed out of the Las Vegas mass shooting uh, along similar lines, trying to find an exception to PLACA. And I think that insofar as the other state courts may be willing to find these sorts of exceptions, we might be able to, we might be seeing um, you know, further suits alleging design. With regard to the Sandy Hook case, though, I think that... Um, you know, I think there is a potential jury question here as to whether or not marketing a gun by saying that um, firepower uh, with a semi-automatic weapon is a great way to explore how to express your masculinity um, may actually increase the risk of misuse. Whether or not it does it in this case is going to be something that comes under proximate cause. But as far as proximate cause is concerned, you know, if you think about proximate cause in terms of scope of the risk, one of the things that may actually make it dangerous to suggest that a person ought to explore or develop their masculinity through the firepower of semi-automatic weapons is, is that it's likely that if they do that, they may do it in a way that uh, could cause harm to others. And so, you know, again, I think this is an uphill battle, but I'm not sure it's uh, far-fetched to think that there are possible jury questions here. And furthermore, no court, to my knowledge, has ever found that there's been anything uh, frivolous or defamatory about these lawsuits. And so, um, I think it is true that uh, plaintiffs have not won these. They don't have a, uh, the plaintiff's bar doesn't have um, any you know, win record in these lawsuits. But I think that's different than saying that somehow they're you know, frivolous or defamatory or ought not to be brought. Well, we're taking a look here also at, at uh, Bushmaster that got apparently the Newtown shooter in Sandy Hook took from his mother. Uh, does that create a Paul's graph type of a situation for us? I certainly think that creates uh, serious questions about proximate cause and scope of the risk. And I think Mr. Halbrook's absolutely right that the theft of the weapon and the murder of the mother um, are not going to help the plaintiff's case at all here. And if anything, um, those facts are going to make it uh, much more difficult for them to make a strong case to get into jury. And even when they, if they do succeed in getting through jury, it's going to be tough to convince a jury. Those are going to be um, tough points for them. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. 
Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy, on average, how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at BlueJayLegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJayLegal.com. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Timothy Litton. He's the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at Georgia State University College of Law, and Attorney Stephen Halbrook, Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute. We've been talking about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on the Sandy Hook family's lawsuit against the gunmaker Remington Arms. Ultimately, Steve, what do you see? Who's going to win this lawsuit? And if it's the Remington Arms that's going to win, what kind of a case in a perfect world needs to be presented to get around PLACA and have a finding of liability against gun manufacturers? I think the case is going to go on summary judgment. There's going to be discovery. Remington's going to file a motion for summary judgment based on the lack of evidence of violation of the Unfair Practices Act. All of their advertising is going to come before the court and you're not going to see anything any more riled up than, I mean, a reference to manhood or something. I mean, that just doesn't get it. And then on the proximate cause issue, the plaintiffs aren't going to be able to find any proximate cause here. The the mother bought the gun. Uh, Whether she was ever influenced to buy the gun by advertising, we don't know, but I doubt she was influenced to buy it because she thought it was going to be a really cool gun to murder people with. Uh, Adam Lanza spent all of his time locked in his room playing weird, violent video games and things like that. He murdered his mother. Then he took the gun and did his his misdeeds. So the proximate cause issue just isn't going to be there. So I think that, um, you know, summary judgment is going to be granted if um, there's no material facts in dispute and that one party is entitled to judgment as a matter of law. And I think that's what's going to be the case here. Now. Anything that any lawyer predicts is going to happen. I mean, your own maybe shaking around. So, yeah, I admit the case could go to trial. The court could deny the motion for summary judgment. But that's going to be the big fight. You're going to have, I don't know, maybe a year of discovery. Who knows? Uh, and then the motions are going to... Can I take that hypothetical and throw it over to the law professor <laughs> and say, what kind of a final exam question would you see uh, on a, a tort case where you could envision holding the gun manufacturers liable? What's the perfect world? Well, as I mentioned, I mean, I think that the, it's possible to make out a case for breach, even if it's a tough one, which is that um, the type of marketing language and the type of targeted marketing uh, increases possibility or increases the risk of criminal misuse of the weapon. And if that's the case, you have to ask, well, what are the risks within the scope of that, you know, increased risk? And some of the risks may be something like, uh, you know, a mass shooting. 
given that that's the case, it seems to me that it's possible the case could make it into a jury. I mean, even if it makes it into a jury, it's going to have to face appeal. Um, I was somewhat surprised, I have to admit, that the Connecticut Supreme Court um, took the appeal and actually found the way that it did and actually disagreed with both the New York and the California federal courts and how it interpreted PLACA. And my understanding is, Mr. Holbrook can correct me if I'm wrong, that the Supreme Court's denial of cert in this sort of pretrial stage does not at all suggest that they don't have an opportunity to review this later. And my guess is if the case goes to trial, the plaintiffs win a verdict and it's appealed up to the Connecticut Supreme Court, we may be seeing another opportunity for the Supreme Court to weigh in on what the proper interpretation of this federal statute is with regard to the exceptions to PLACA. And I would expect that the Supreme Court probably would want to settle that matter um, because if the plaintiffs win here, there'll be blood in the water and you can expect a lot more litigation around the country. Steve, what kind of uh, wake-up call does this lawsuit give to the gun industry? Do you think they'll be making any changes to avoid future litigation? I'm not sure what changes they could make because I've, I haven't seen any any advertising of the type that's implied by the allegations in the complaint here. I'm not sure what they could do. I mean, they, they make lawful products. They, um, they give new designs to the ATF for review for classification. They try to do what's lawful, and the legislative branches make the law. And um, you asked what kind of case could be brought where there would be liability, and, and it's clear in the plaque itself, negligent entrustment by a dealer, for example, that'd be the case where you intentionally sell a gun to a felon. That would, besides negligent entrustment, that would be the violation of the, of the gun control statute itself. A, a manufacturer could not be said to negligently entrust. Uh, a gun because they don't deal with the ultimate consumer, but a manufacturer, if a manufacturer intentionally made a gun where it would fire like a machine gun and somehow uh, marketed it in that way, that's the allegation in the complaint in the um, uh, the Nevada shooting, the, the uh, Las Vegas massacre, and uh, the plaintiffs aren't going to be able to prove that these guns were really machine guns because they were semi-automatic and, and the ATF uh, classified them as such. Uh, but that's what you would have to do to create liability here. You, the, the, a manufacturer would have to actually violate the law, and that violation of the law would have to be a, the proximate cause of whatever harm came about. It seems like an impossible task. Well, we've almost reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So what I'd like to do is is throw the question over to uh, Professor Litton to perhaps give us an indication here. I mean, obviously, the parents of the Sandy Hook children are wanting some gun reform and some, some gun issues. And, and it, it appears from everything we're seeing in this lawsuit that litigation is not going to be one of the remedies. So where do the remedies lie? So let's get your final thoughts and perhaps wrap up with that question along with your contact information. Professor Litton, I'll throw it over to you. Sure. Well, like I said, I wouldn't write off the plaintiffs altogether. Uh, surprising things have happened so far in this lawsuit, and there may be more surprises to come. But that being said, I think that there's some um, public value to the litigation process itself, regardless of who ultimately prevails in court. And that has to do with the idea that um, by filing a lawsuit, you can frame the issue in a way that uh, generates public attention. And the way this issue has been framed is not just focusing on the role of mass shooters, but also any role that the industry might have in its capacities to you know, exercise um, discretion in terms of marketing and designs and distribution uh, to try and help uh, you know, with efforts to reduce the risk of gun violence. And you know, I also think that the discovery process is likely to bring out information that may uh, not be readily available, that we don't know about how the gun industry regularly does business and how they think about who they're marketing to and 
how they want to um, boost sales in those different sectors. And I think finally, uh, this litigation, just the process itself, is likely to keep the issue on uh, legislative agendas around the country uh, for people to keep their eye out on you know, meaningful reforms. I think the first of which would be you know, proper funding of uh, public health um, studies to figure out, you know, are there things that we can do to reduce gun violence? I think everybody on all sides of this debate is eager to reduce gun violence. The question is, uh, what are the levers that would make that possible? And I think one of the problems is we don't have enough information to know that. And part of that is because we have underfunded public health uh, research in this area now for uh, you know over 10 years, and that probably is something that needs to be remedied. And the litigation is likely to keep um, those sorts of issues on the public agenda. Uh, with that in mind, I just you know want to mention it's been a pleasure to be on the program. Um, there's some interesting uh, studies from all different angles uh, and different sides of uh, gun politics in my book, Suing the Gun Industry. Um, so I would encourage people who are looking for a variety of different takes on the litigation to look at that. Um, and I'd be happy for people to contact me here at Georgia State University College of Law. You can find me uh, on, the, on the law school website. Great. Thank you very much. And Stephen, we'll throw it to you. Well, the um, Newtown case shows how complex the issue really is. It's not about a piece of metal. It's about a mentality, a psychosis, a, a sickness in our society. Uh, that case, the Parkland school shooting, I mean, you've got so many variables here. You have a failure of law enforcement. You have a transformation of society. When I was growing up, guns were readily available. There was never a school shooting. There was never any, any of these things. None of this stuff took place. We've got some very complex problems here, and we have millions of law-abiding people in this country who own and possess the kinds of guns that was involved in, in this case. They're law-abiding people that haven't harmed anybody. A small minority of, of people commit crimes with guns. We have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in our Constitution. And uh, that's why Congress, to protect that right and to protect those interests, passed the, the PLACA. And all it does is basically does to say that you can't sue a manufacturer for something that somebody else did uh, when the manufacturer didn't do anything wrong. There are those who have not been able to get what they want legislatively, and um, they want to use the courts to, to get that. Now, the state of Connecticut passed its own version of a so-called assault weapon ban. The mother of Adam Lanza was in compliance with that. There was no law violated there, but what was done here exhibits a sickness in our society that, uh, yeah, we do need to know more about the, what's going on, you know, what causes these things. I don't think we need to fund research to know what we know already about the fact that a gun doesn't by itself do anything. We have people who are either mentally ill or they're terrorists or for whatever reason, they're committing murders. And um, what can we do about that? And it has to do with proper law enforcement, say something, if you know something, a lot, a lot of things like that. We won't solve it, you know, in, on this show, obviously, but uh, yeah, it does need to be more dialogue. And um, certainly the litigation itself will, will bring out more in terms of the public discourse on this issue, and we'll see where that heads. So. Um, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. And uh, let me just give you my contact information. I have a website, stephenhallbrook.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-H-A-L-B-R-O-O-K.com. And besides the books that you mentioned when you introduced me, since this is a lawyer show, I also have a book called The Firearms Law Desk Book. 
It's a Westlaw publication, and it's the, the only comprehensive treatise on firearms law. It, it basically has to do with the statutes and case law, and um, it, it's useful for prosecutors and for criminal defense bar in terms of federal law, ATF regulations, all of those issues. So that's something you might want to check out, the Firearms Law Desk book. Great. And thank you very much. Well, we'd like to thank Associate Dean Timothy Litton and Stephen Halbrook for being with us today. So if you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.